what is the purpose of education today? Hi, this is Aga and Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design and much more. Latifa Al-Khalifa is a social entrepreneur, STEAM education advocate, and a founding member of Clever Play, a purpose-driven startup with a mission to inspire, educate, and empower 1 million children in MENA STEAM skills by 2030. And the STEAM is not STEM and it's not a game, right? Yes. We will explain the STEM All and right. STEAM difference there in a moment. To date, Clever Play reached over 15,000 children inside and outside of Bahrain. The company maintains a strong focus on girls and young women to support gender equality. Clever Play has won many awards, including the Startup of the Year Award by GESS, Education in Dubai, and the Startup of the Greatest Scale-Up Potential by Gazelles and C3 Social Impact Accelerator winner in 2020, powered by HSBC. Latifa holds a master's degree in international relations from Webster University UK and a bachelor's degree in politics and international studies from Monash University Australia. Her work on behalf of children has earned her broad recognition, including Female Entrepreneur of the Year Award by His Highness of Crown Prince of Bahrain, Entrepreneurship Awards and Top Female Influencers in Bahrain in 2019 by Golf Magazine. In 2020, Latifa was selected as one of only 100 meaningful business leaders worldwide for her efforts combining profit and purpose to help achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals by Meaningful Business in the UK. On the top of it all, Latifa is a podcaster too and a host of the Steamcast podcast, a short bi-weekly podcast about anything and everything about STEM. She says about herself that she's a lifelong learner and a firm believer in taking action, starting before you're ready and leaving your dreams, not just thinking about them. Latifa, so fantastic to have you with us today. I'm super excited, very flattered to be here. Thank you very much for reaching out. Latifa, let's start with the question that Lukasz said just a moment ago. What's the difference between STEM and STEAM? Yeah, absolutely. So STEM is science, technology, engineering, and math. And this is, you know, what's most prevalent in the world today. You know, when you hear about STEM, you think, okay, I know what that means. Obviously, we're missing a, a very big component here when you look at, you know, STEM mostly focused on the more analytical, the more critical thinking, logical side of the brain. We know though, that you know we're blessed with having the artistic the creative the imaginative side which and so what ended up happening was the you know the educational philosophers who really came up with this concept of stem decided that you know stem needed an upgrade it needed a facelift right so they came up with version 2.0 which is steam which incorporates basically the arts and the arts is not, you know, your typical definition of what the arts is, which is, you know, when you think of the arts, you think, okay, let me take me back to arts class in school when I used to do drawings and paintings, etc. But the arts is so much bigger, you know, there's so much soft skills involved in the arts, whether it's being imaginative, but even entrepreneurship is an art, right? So I would, I would advocate to say, hey, entrepreneurship 
in and of itself is actually an art form. And so the arts there really kind of plays a balancing act between, you know, your logical, critical thinking, problem solving, more like engineering type of doing and thinking to the more imaginative, creative uh, processes that are also required to create new solutions for the world. So the understanding of STEM and STEAM in general basically means moving away from your traditional way of teaching and learning through, you know, theoretical based learning into more practical, hands-on, project-based learning. And that's what the world needs today. You know, the world needs solution-oriented citizens and they start from how we raise them when they're young. So in the different places where you speak about Clever Play and, and your mission, you talk about the 21st century skills, which is curiosity and creativity and collaboration and confidence. They all start with C, by the way, I just realized. And imagination, which doesn't. Just um, the physical education is missing and then you have, you know, <laughs> just the regular school again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting because in a way, when you are talking about those skills as being 21st century skills, it kind of implies that we lost them somehow. Is it so? It's, you know what? It's so funny that you said that because when you look back at how we were brought into the traditional education system, it was created for a very different world. We no longer live in the same world, right? So the purpose of education has changed and yet the way that we teach hasn't. So there's a huge disconnect between, you know, where we were and where we are today and more importantly, where we're going, right? So when you when you think of children, when they enter the school, you know, they are Children are natural scientists, you know, they're, they're super curious. They ask like 300 questions in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have nephews and a niece. I can tell you, like they would ask question after question. And so what ends up happening though, is, you know, when they go into that traditional rote memorization, standardized testing kind of way of doing education, it deprives them of that natural instinct of being curious, being imaginative, thinking outside that proverbial box, uh, just the natural abilities of, you know, how children are primed to be. And so when you said, have we lost it? Unfortunately, yes, because what ends up happening is with schools, the system has been created to make you conform. So when you walk into that like factory building, by the time you're out, you know, when you're 17 or 18 years old and you're about to engage in the real world, what skills have you been taught other than really conforming, listening to, you know, to elders and teachers, being great at taking tests, but no, we know that the world doesn't work that way. For you to actually be able to survive and thrive in the world, you need to leave your mark. You need to think very differently. You need to act very differently. You need to have a completely different blueprint. And so unfortunately, yes, uh, you know, we are sad to say, but that's, that's really the, the reality of the situation right now is that kids are being sucked out of, you know, their curiosity, their creativity, etc. And they are made to conform. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
May I also just add one more thing here about, you know, you mentioned 21st century skills. And although this, this is what it's called right now, right? 21st century skills. I go so far as to argue that these skills will go far beyond the 21st century. So it really doesn't make sense to even call it 21st century skills. Uh, these are, you know, very human centric skills that we as humans have an advantage over robots. Robots can't do what we currently do. They don't have empathy. There's no possible way in which robots today can do the things that humans can do. And it all starts with imagination. And so I believe that imagination is the currency of the future. And I believe that these skills that you touched on, communication, critical thinking, creativity, are all collaboration, are all skills, soft skills that are required well beyond the 21st century. We don't know what that's going to look like. Sure, new jobs are going to exist. Old jobs are going to go under. Yeah, but for sure, we know that these skills are going to be extremely valuable. Just for me to unconfuse a little bit, because I, I smell here that these are two parallel tracks, right? Because even if we didn't change STEM into STEAM, you could still teach this kind of engineering skills in a 19th century way when you have to. So this is one and only way and you have to memorize it and learn it and repeat it on, on a queue rather than critical thinking and, you know, solving problems. So we have more than one front to attack. Yeah. And, and you know what, like what's great about engineering skills is that regardless of whether or not you go on to pursue STEM, STEAM professions in the future, you know, whether you, you would get into an engineering degree or whether you would get into something related to robotics or technology, being a coder, etc. Regardless, the engineering skills that you develop, just having that mindset of thinking like an engineer is critical today. Engineers are problem solvers. They think about, okay, this is a problem. How may I fix it? And they always, always, always have to think creatively about how to solve a problem because they are constrained in terms of time, in terms of finances, et cetera, et cetera, in terms, other in terms of materials, other people. With. Absolutely. So these skills are hugely important, you know, mm. not just solving problems, finding problems, right? Sometimes problems are, are not visibly seen. So how can you find these problems to be able to, you know, before they actually manifest into bigger and bigger problems? How can you tackle them when they're small? So yeah, you touch on a very important point there. Actually, there is a saying in design that the job of a designer is not to solve problems, but to create a better problem. So I think that this is probably what you are trying to say here, right? That first of all, like find the problems that are hidden and identify them before they grow so big that it's just difficult to handle them, but also if we are to create problems, and generally we do create problems by creating things, create the problems that are better. It has consequences, but at least the consequences are not as severe as they were before we actually solved this particular thing. Oh, right? That's an interesting angle. Like you are transforming problems. You are mm -hmm. never giving solutions Yeah. because of the side effects. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> and it all goes back to the kinds of questions that you ask, right? So, and I think here's a point of differentiation between what we're taught in school, because the value is in the answers. Mm. So you as a student, you have to, you know, prepare uh, so that you are always, you know, when you're called upon or when you raise your hand, you always have the right answer. Yeah. <laughs> We know in the world today that there are no set answers. You have to just carve your own path. But what we forget to actually teach is 
how might we ask the right questions? Because asking the right questions will prove to be so much more valuable than just knowing what the right answer is, which, where you can find, you know, in the book, page 56, the answer is right there. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> you know, by the so, way, it's set in stone and unchangeable, right? <laughs> 42, yes. Yeah, <laughs> 42. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's really risky for schools, right? Because the first questions pupil will ask is, what the hell am I doing here? And then, well, you have to deal with this immediately. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, that's why, you know, it's it's like conforming us to think a certain way, right? Yeah. But then it, it's it's also important to be able to ask the question about what is the purpose of education today? I think that's something that we lose sight over. Mm -hmm. Even in this day and age, when there's so much technological advancement around us, we are yet to really reimagine what education can look like and mm -hmm. what the schools should look like and how they may equip students, our children, our youth with the right mindset, heart set and skill set for what's ahead because they're trying so much to, with the built-in walls, to kind of, I don't know what the right word is, but maybe coddle, you know, coddle them into, you know, just, okay, like this is how it is. You're safe in this, in this kind of environment. But we know that, you know, once they're outside those walls, it's a whole new world. I remember someone uh, making this distinction. I really liked it between learning and education. That's at least my interpretation, that if you live in a world when your amount of knowledge is fixed, like 19th century, like when this, our education systems were emerged, then all you need to learn will be given to you by the education system, right? But now when you mentioned that we are in a different world and the challenges are different, the twist should be that the education systems teaches you how to learn because you have to learn you know, your whole life and those two become distinct and one is clearly in the service of the other one. And if, if I were to add to what you were just saying, so the way that I see this is with knowledge, there's a specific output in relation to school or university, which is, you know, you get that certificate or that paper at the end of your so-called learning journey, right? Whereas, you know, when you, when you're a lifelong learner, when as you mentioned, you know, when you have the skills to be able to learn, un unlearn, relearn and have that, you know, framework of being a learner, then you understand that every opportunity is a learning opportunity. And also, more importantly, knowledge was great, maybe in the 1940s or even like before the Internet, when you were really valued for, you know, storing that knowledge. But today, it's not what you know, it's what you do with what you know. Google knows everything. Everyone's like, okay, you know what? You don't know the answer to this? Google it, right? But Google is great because it knows all the answers, but how much of what you actually know you can actually implement and, and use? That's the difference maker. And that's, mm -hmm. I think, the distinction between what you know and being able to learn, unlearn, relearn, and use what you know to actually use it in service of, of something or of someone. Mm -hmm. Mm. I think I have a really very recent and really spot on example of this. A new client reached out to me and they said, well, we started this process of getting our house in order on a kind of a strategy level. It's a lab that is connected to a big corporation. 
And they spent more than a year with a company helping them. And all that company, they did a lot of work. They gave them all the tools, you know, to understand who they are, what they want to do. And it looked like a complete package. So they, they finished the, um, the work with that company and they realized they have no idea what to do next and how to put all these pieces into action. So this somehow resonates with what you said. I mean, all the knowledge is there. They went through the motions as described by a, a number of different tools to get your answers. But what they are missing is how it connects and how to use it to actually make a difference and, you know, create an outcome in the end. That's where most people, unfortunately, stagnate. Mm. That has been my experience into just delving into entrepreneurship, to be honest, because, you know, it's one thing when you are standing on the sidelines and you know, you know everything, but, you know, you're not in the game, so yeah. to speak. So to your point, you know, you you have the strategy mapped out, but you're not taking action. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, like action builds momentum. So once you're able to actually take down the strategy and try to find a way to actually implement it on the ground, small actions done consistently will eventually, you know, become bigger and bigger things. So that's unfortunately the disconnect between, okay, this is what I know. How do I get started? And there's a jump that you have to just, you know, or a leap that you have to take to be able to go from where you are to where you want to be. It's not always easy to jump that jump, but you have to understand that there's no way that you can put something into practice unless you actually take action on it, you know, because as good as your business plan is, if you don't actually implement it on the ground, it's pretty useless. Mm. Mm. There's another challenge in this because, uh, we have a tendency to return to our default way of doing things. So the skill that you are talking about is not only about knowing, not only about being able to take action, but also to keep on going in this new direction, although the, the default is always pulling you back. I find this a very, very difficult challenge for a lot of people. So even if they have the initial enthusiasm and they know how to get started over time, when you meet the first hurdle or the second or the third, they kind of get discouraged. They are not persistent enough to actually see through the change that they are seeking. So my theory is maybe it's not necessarily persistence, but maybe what it is, is that when they go to that default setting, I guess you can call it like operating system, right? So our default operating system, if you don't make the switch in your new identity, mm -hmm. you will always go back to how you used to do things. So I think it's really about shaping that new identity about who you need to be or who you want to be and then reframing it as what are the actions that you need to take to be able to actually be that person, right? So there's a lot of reverse engineering here, but personally, like I have found this to be most useful and that I had to make that identity shift myself. And when I made that identity shift, you would always find yourself in that you know, an opportunity that you want to go back and because it's, it's, it's comforting. It's, it's who, you know, it's who you've been that entire time. But we know that if you don't take the leap and grow, you're always going to stay where you are. Totally. And by the way, as you were talking about 
this old way of teaching or old way of education. I've been thinking about the fact that apart from the COVID pandemic, we also have a burnout pandemic across the world, especially across the Western world. I, I don't know how it is in, in Asia, but definitely in our circles and what I hear from, from my friends all around the world, they say that they don't want to conform to this command and control way of being ruled <laughs> by their bosses. So a lot of people, they just burn out and take sick leaves and, and, and you know, try to figure out what is the next thing that they want to do. And I think that this is an interesting moment because indeed, even if it was a slightly crippled, we, or, or the generations probably coming after us because we are still the sort of oldish generation here. That <laughs> uh, if I smacking face saying no. <laughs> okay, but anyway, so so the people who came afterwards... Oh, because Aga, you said only about the two of us. We didn't say anything about our guests. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I was just talking. I was referring to us. It's, it's how you feel. Honestly, you guys yeah, are course. looking amazing. You know what I mean? And especially now we live in a world where we can age gracefully. So uh, Yeah, totally. And also it's, yeah. it's about your mental aging and mentally I'm definitely I've never crossed I, I definitely didn't something. finish learning so <laughs> yes. what can I say I cannot be old <laughs> yeah, anyway coming back so I think that we are in this moment of, of shift between the old and the new when a lot of people in high positions are still propagating the co command and control model and they try to make people do things the way they think they should they should be done while the people who are on the uh, work floor they are saying like oh no <laughs> i am a creative person i i am an independent thinker if you don't give me the permission and the possibility to do things my own way i just don't want to be here anymore and this is an interesting thing because i think that there will be a shift economically between the companies that embrace this new model and a lot of talent will want to work there rather than the companies that are still propagating this you know old school way of running business where people are not necessarily this might be a safe harbor for some but not necessarily a place to create something that's going to be breakthrough for the future how do you see that 100%. I agree. And that's, that's what I've seen, you know, just being in business uh, and evolving over the last four years, especially with COVID. One of the things that I did early on was I said, all right, we're transitioning to completely online because many of my team members are women. Many of them are moms. They have kids and we didn't want to take the risk, not for themselves, not for their families. And so we said, we're transitioning completely online. Like two years into it, we're still very much online. We do operates you know from our physical location every now and then but honestly the way that i see it is if i give my team autonomy if they are empowered to be able to you know make decisions and i wholeheartedly trust that the work at the end of the day will get done do i track how many hours they work no because what we care about is output you know what i mean so that's the metric that we're after how you work, 
how you want to break it up, that's completely up to you. You have complete freedom about how you wish to work. And to your point, that's absolutely true because if I'm a morning person, that doesn't necessarily mean that all of my team members are. One of my team members is actually a night owl. She loves working at night, you know? So I will receive her work 2 a.m., 3 a.m. You know, when I wake up in the morning, like, whoa, okay, someone's been up. That's what it is. But just giving them that freedom to be able to navigate how they wish to work is a huge step in the in the right direction. And, you know, just going back to your question on, or, you know, to your comment on, on burnout, um, I think the way that I personally see burnout is, you know, because I run a business, it's a little bit different because my wiring is a little bit different and that I think, okay, okay, I can take a day off, sure. But at the end of the day, you know, it's ownership, right? It's, it's why you're doing it. And there are people that are looking up to you and people who need that direction, especially now more than ever with COVID, uh, when there was a lot of uncertainty about how things are going to go, you had to give them that sense of calm, that sense of your direction, that sense of control, so that they feel like, okay, you know what, like, okay, we're going to get past this. Uh, so I think for, for me personally, like COVID was an eye-opener. So many lessons learned personally and professionally. And I got out of it burnt out, honestly, because what ended up happening was there were no boundaries to how much I worked. Mm. And because I worked from home, I just felt a bit like there, there really is no, the line is blurred. There is no line between work and home. What actually happened, and I'm so thankful that it did, this was a blessing in disguise, is that I live with my now five-year-old nephew and his business is play, <laughs> right? His business is play. He doesn't care that I'm in a conference call or in a meeting. No, when he comes in and he's like, you're still working, we need to play. <laughs> and at first I used to get frustrated. I'm like, no, let me just finish what I have. And then I'm going to play with you. And when he kept on doing it over and over again, I'm like, oh my God, you are absolutely right. Let's stop what I'm currently doing. Let's play. And I come back to work, you know, feeling very rejuvenated. You know, my energy levels are high, et cetera. So I made it a point now to write my own work manifesto, mm -hmm. <laughs> if you will, about how I how I intentionally work. And I shared it with my team and I said, this is how I work. I literally wrote it down exactly what I do before work, what I do during work and what I do after work and where my boundaries lie. So set non-negotiables that I will no longer tolerate. And I do that because I wanna make sure that I have enough energy to come in day after day and keep continue building. Especially as an entrepreneur, not much is being said about the demands of what it takes to build a business. And that side of things are usually not being seen by my team members. You know, that's something that I don't really show to them. But when I created that work manifesto, it was very eye-opening for me. Like, oh my God, this is great. Now I know where my boundaries are because mm -hmm. I didn't have any. So I would urge anyone who's, you know, feeling burnt out 
to actually take a few moments and carve out what a perfect day looks like. You know, what a perfect day. And I don't say work day, what a perfect day, because work is just a part of your day. You know, it should not be the entire day. And make sure that you are prioritizing your energy levels more than anything else. I absolutely love it. Yeah. I think that a lot of people would benefit from an exercise like this totally. There is the saying that there is no such a thing as work-life balance, that there is only work-life integration. And what you are talking about is exactly that, that you need to understand that <laughs> work is life <laughs> rather than work is separate from life, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And then when it becomes a double bonus is when the work, one, is meaningful, that you actually care about it, right? And two is that when your work is play. When you don't make the distinction between, you know, whether you're working or playing, that's when you hit the jackpot. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's when you hit the jackpot. Like, you know, okay, I'm actually doing this for fun. It's giving me energy. It's rewarding. You know, I find my work extremely meaningful. That doesn't mean, of course, that, you know, you're not going to put in the hours. You're not going to work hard. You're, you're not going to see any ups and downs. That's just guaranteed. But how you view your work is something that you can control. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That brings me to a question. Or change. <laughs> Or change, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That brings me to a question about the future. You said that the education of the past was the education with tests and with answers. The education of today is probably a mess because it's a little bit of the old and a little bit of the new. But if you were to look into the future and say from your own perspective, what the ideal learning would be all about and how it would look like, what would it be? So right now we're in the messy middle, so to speak, right? But I'm very hopeful and very optimistic about what will come out of this. And I think, you know, with COVID, it really helped accelerate what education can actually look like and what it should look like. So if I were to look into the future and see what education might look like, I would say first and foremost is that instead of having a standardized curriculum that everyone has to follow, that students themselves create their own curriculum. It doesn't make sense that we all have to do the same subjects, except for electives. It, it really does not make any sense. You know, we all have strengths, we all have weaknesses. We all, you know, know what we're geared towards in terms of interests and passions and things that we'd like to discover on our own. And I think one of the main things that we have to capitalize on in the future is curiosity. So what are you curious about? So what are you curious about learning? So create your own learning plan, so to speak, create your own curriculum, things that interest you. So that's number one. Number two, moving away from testing your knowledge, which now we know is really not, not all that effective. And, you know, with the memorization, by the time you finish the exam, it will start evaporating. And what you actually retained stays with you. Not very much, right? Speaking from experience. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'd like to see is when we make that shift from standardized testing to project-based learning. So again, giving students autonomy to be able to make and create and do something with what they've just learned, right? So just exploring that pathway of, okay, this is what I've learned. What can I make? You know, we hear today that we live in a creator's economy, right? And what do creators do? Creators create. 
And we're all inclined as humans to, to make and do and create and, and share with the world and contribute. And so I think that's really important to give students an opportunity to make and create and share what they're working on with the world. The other thing that I would say is not just changing how we teach, but why we teach. <laughs> what happened with virtual learning is that schools went online and did a whole like business as usual. Of course, it's not going to work. It's ridiculous. Like you cannot use the same methods that you used to use in your classroom, your physical classroom online. It doesn't make any sense. So the methods of teaching would have to change to the point where the role of the teacher will have to be redefined, right? So when we used to see the teacher as the guru, the know-it-all, the, you know, the sage on the stage, if you will, <laughs> who stands in front of the classroom and dictates, how it should look like, in my opinion, is actually the teacher learning just alongside her students and becomes a guide and a facilitator of learning, not the quote-unquote teacher. Mm -hmm. And I think we're, we're definitely going to capitalize on learning experiences and that learning doesn't just happen like in four walls or in a classroom or in a, in a school-like building. Learning can happen all around us and creating the conditions for learning is just as important. So, you know, making sure that, you know, the environment is right for the kind of learning that you want to take place is very important. So I foresee learning spaces changing to accommodate. So these are just some of the things that I'd like to see definitely a lot more in the future. When I'm thinking about this choosing your own path, that is something not for young children, right? I mean, you have to be, you know, aware and you have to do some reflection, maybe with help of others or your, or your parents or maybe even some, you know, tools and procedures. That's fine. But how would you imagine the earliest education would look like in order to prepare you for something like this? Because on one hand, you need some basic stuff. You have to be able to write, formulate your thoughts, probably also in writing if we, if we keep living in this connected Typing. <laughs> well, typing, I'm not worried about. The games will take care of that. Right. And I hear I a lot. Well. And yeah, and we see uh, like the early birds of this choose your own path. That has been around some universities already for, uh, for years. But not everyone comes prepared in order to deal with such a freedom. So how would you like to see the early education to get you in a state that you can take really advantage of this new wonderful way of learning? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. So I think like everything, you know, there are things that, of course, you know, like they would have to learn, right, as a way to just operate in the world. So that I think is, is an absolute given. But I also think that children today have a way of telling you what they like and what they don't like. They're not shy about it. You know, they'll tell you to your face, like, hey, like, I like this. I don't like this. this. So I think creating the conditions from early childhood where children are exposed to different ways of doing things, different passions, different interests. I always advocate for exposing children to STEAM education early on. Why do I guarantee that they're going to get into STEM STEAM careers in the future? 
No. But what I can tell you is just that early exposure is going to make a difference in shaping their mindset around the kinds of skills that they learn, the kinds of ways that they view learning, etc. So I think it really, really is imperative to start in early childhood because the way that I see it is when you're looking to build a house, you start with the foundation. And if you have a solid and strong foundation in place, you're not worried about external conditions. You're not worried about hurricanes. You're not worried about, you know, thunder, earthquakes or whatever, because you know you have a solid foundation and you build brick by brick on that solid foundation. And so early childhood for me is the missing link. And unfortunately is the one that is not seen as much and where investments are lacking because many companies and governments, et cetera, are looking to tackle the bigger problems in you know, high school, middle school, you name it. But we don't think about, okay, what might we do for our youngsters to be able to actually create the path to where we want them to go in the future? And that's long-term thinking that usually most people would opt in for you know, short-term fixes. Mm. And by the time you fix these high school-related problems, how effective are they? You know, how effective is your solution now? Advocate, you know, sometimes that these solutions are are not as effective because you know you're late in the game. Mm. Whereas if you actually want to change the game, we all know where it's supposed to start. You know, it's supposed to start in early childhood education and then literally brick by brick moving from there because that's where the cycle is. So yeah. So is it all lost for us? Oh, no, not at all. No, 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 not at all. Like I said, I am an eternal optimist, right? I'm an eternal optimist. I think your biggest advantage is having a learner mindset. Your biggest advantage today is actually learning. Learning, applying learning from your mistakes, learning from your experiences, learning from your successes, learning from those who have succeeded in the past or have failed in the past, etc. Learning through trial and error. But the main thing I think comes down to, you know, the mindset that you have. If you have a mindset of victim mindset if you will, you know where you would just victimized, everything is happening, you know, to me, you'll always be sucked into that negativity. But if you own up and take ownership about where you are in the world today and where you'd like to go and actually carve out a path and do, right? It's action. Do, you're going to be in a much better place. And so it all comes down to identity and asking yourself, who do you want to be? And what do I need to do to get to where I want to be? That's really where it is so i'm no 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 we're we're not lost if you have that <laughs> if you have that compass if you have that compass there's nothing to worry about if you can just upgrade your skill sets your mindset your tools the tools that you will need to be able to carve that path and to make sure to upgrade that identity as well to match your new mindset and skill set and tool set i would like to switch gears and ask you about another topic which is you primarily focus on delivering education for female 
students. And I'm curious, how do you see it from two perspectives? One is like a challenge for being female who wants to learn in your world, but also how is it to be a female entrepreneur? Let me see how I'm going to answer this. I can only speak about what I've seen in my country, right? So I don't know what the situation is like in different countries around the MENA region or the Middle East or Africa region. But in my country, in Bahrain, we don't have barriers between men and women. We never had, frankly. So I am very privileged to have been raised by fantastic parents who never, and, and by the way, like, I come from a family of four girls, right? We don't have any <laughs> boys. Yeah, yeah, four girls. And never have I heard my dad wonder, like, why don't I have a boy or, you know, to carry the family name or anything like that. Never, ever, ever. From the very beginning, my parents have been very strict about the importance of education. And so even when, you know, one of my sisters and I decided that we wanted to go and pursue education outside of Bahrain, they never stopped us. They said, you've excelled at school, you have that passion and drive and ambition, go, we're not going to stand in your way. You see women in high positions, whether in government, whether in the private sector, and they get paid the same. Maternity leave, all the rights that you can imagine, we have. And so I didn't face that discrimination, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, not even when I got into entrepreneurship, because again, we had equal opportunities in, you know, supporting young and small uh, business owners. And there's so many female founders that I know of that are in my circle that are all from the country that are doing fantastically well. So, you know, there's something in <laughs> our waters, you know, being a very small island as well, that, like I said, we've always been empowered to be able to do anything. And so for me, actually, the biggest thing is not breaking the proverbial society imposed, if you will, glass ceiling, but actually challenging women to break their own glass ceilings, uh -huh. right? To break their own self-imposed glass ceilings of whether I can or can't. That's what I see personally, because I think society has evolved so much so that if you wanted something, you can get it, but it's just whether or not you have convinced yourself and you feel confident enough with your abilities to be able to go out there because the opportunities are there. And the only person that is stopping yourself is yourself. Hmm. So true. So true. So if you were to think about your personal practice of getting things done, what is it? <laughs> well, uh, it goes back to my work manifesto. So I work, train and recover like an athlete. So I, you know, I used to play competitive sports at high school. And one of the things about being in competitive sports is that there's so many good things that comes out of understanding your body, your mindset, etc., and how would it actually relates to entrepreneurship. And so the way that I do it is, you know, as an athlete, you always have to have a game plan, <laughs> right? So you have to have a game plan. I work in short and powerful sprints, and then I rest, recover, and repeat, <laughs> right? So uh, I make sure to, you know, to prime 
for success beforehand. So of course, at least the day before, I have to have everything planned out, mapped out for what I need to get done the next day. I don't leave it to chance or I don't leave it to my mood. That doesn't work for me usually, right? So I actually have to know exactly what I need to do. Then I make sure to sharpen the saw regularly. So make sure that, you know, you are prioritizing important things that will keep your energy levels high, whether that's, you know, sleep, it's nutrition, it's, you know, it's breath work, things of that nature that, you know, you just need to be able to be your best self. Setting non-negotiable boundaries, that really, really helped with getting things done and getting the right things done, if I may say so myself. You know, you can always get things done and you can tick, you know, things off the to-do list, but making sure that you're getting the right things done that move the needle forward is what's important. So I work in productive solitude. You know, I single-mindedly focus on the key result areas that I know will drive results. And I go on all in on that. But then I also, to keep me kind of motivated to continue on that winning streak, if you will, I've created this like shutdown work day ritual where every day at the end of work, because I have a specific day, time where like, I know that's it. I know you're working from home, but you need to unplug. <laughs> I celebrate my wins. I have like automated questions that come to me because I use a, a software called Basecamp. So it's um, where we work basically as a team. And every day at a specific time, this automated question would come up and say, okay, what did you get done today? Celebrate mm. your wins. So I would just write them down. Oh, wow. So it's, it's something really small, but you know, you, you say, okay, you know what? Like, this is what I was able to accomplish. And I have to say, rest ethic. We talk a lot about work ethic. We don't talk enough about rest ethic. Mm. And for you to consistently get things done, you have to be as meticulous as you are about your work ethic to adopt a rest ethic. What that could look like is, you know, maybe unplugging on the weekends, right, from technology. That's one way of really going all out and, and resting. Weekly reflections and things of that nature. So those are some of the practices that I've tried and honed in, et cetera, over the last, I would say, least maybe five years or so. And um, this has been what has worked for me personally. Just out of curiosity, what sports did you do at uh, high school? Must oh, have I played something so com comprehensive. <laughs> I played all kinds of sports. Like I, I was a pretty well-rounded athlete. I, I used to play soccer, basketball, volleyball. I did a little bit of track. But the one that I really saw myself in was soccer. Mm. I almost got into like the national team at one point, but I was like, oh, sorry, need to go study. <laughs> need, to, <laughs> you know, need to go and complete my degrees. Wow. So if you were to recommend a book that helps our listeners to get things done in their lives or inspires them to pursue things, to be consistent, what would that be? Ooh, so to be consistent, I'm just looking around because I have so so many books I love reading. Oh, one of my earliest dreams was to become a librarian. <laughs> it's, it's, it's still there, by the way, I have to say. I, it's still there. That dream didn't die. To get things done. Can I give a different recommendation? Of course. It's not. Okay. So the book is called Endurance. And I don't want to spoil it 
because it's a beautiful book. And if you were to listen to it on Audible, like as an audio version, it's absolutely thrilling. It's an adventure, real life adventure about a, and a very inspiring story. And just the challenges that, that they had to go through as a, you know, adventure team, they wanted to get a conquer, I think, Antarctica at that point, you know, like the first expedition ever to go and explore. And just the, you know, the challenges that they had to face and how they, they were able to overcome it, that in and of itself, I think, you know, that is a definition of getting things done, right? <laughs> Even with you know surmountable like challenges, how do you stay positive in such a challenging environment and actually remember why you're there? And the great thing is that they ended up coming back. Like they ended up finding a way to get rescued after years of being in Antarctica with no contact with the outside world. So brilliant story and yeah. if they survive that we can survive pretty much anything yeah you think face. our problems are big right 100 <laughs> it just puts things into perspective right yeah <laughs> do you happen to remember the author because i imagine there could be more than one book with this title it's alfred lansing i think alfred right. lansing we'll find oh, it yeah. out and okay. we'll put it in the show notes latifa thank you so much for this beautiful conversation I'm thrilled that you found the time to chat with us. And energy. And energy. I found the energy. <laughs> yeah. Although this seems like you have an infinite supply. <laughs> I try to manage it well. I try to manage it yeah, well. Exactly. But no, honestly, thank you. Thank you so much for reaching out and for this opportunity. I had an absolute blast. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks again for reaching out. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com.